the movement brainery. I was about 20 miles from Washington, and there was a rest area. I couldn't see. I was crying so hard. And then I said, you son of a bitch. That was to myself. This man is dying from multiple myeloma. It's his last summer of life, and he's in love with PT. You open a restaurant. You walk away. You don't go to academy meetings anymore. You dirty, rotten person. I mean, I was furious with myself. I come home. I call a family gathering. And I said, I just want to let you all know, I'm going to go back to being a PT. I mean, the cheers, the hugs, and everything just erupted in the room. And my fan, it was spontaneous from them. They were just overwhelmed because Mike the PT was the real Mike. You're listening to Masters in Motion, a limited edition podcast about physical therapy leaders and their stories so that we can apply those same lessons to our own lives and the challenges that lie ahead. Mike Rogers' life has been a series of firsts. Being born as the first of three sons in Buffalo, New York, in this interview, he recounts his first encounter with physical therapy, his first day of physical therapy school, and his first day at work, all the way to him becoming one of the first members of AOMT as one of the founding fellows of the Academy. If you haven't heard Mike's story, you're in for a treat. Mike's story is unlike anything else we've had on the podcast. He was so involved with physical therapy, traveling to England to spend time with James Syriax, doing two programs in Norway with Ola Grimsby and Freddie Kaltenborn, starting one of the first residency programs in the United States, being the second president of AMPT. But after Hurricane Katrina destroyed his clinic, Mike quit. After all of those firsts, Mike talks about why he left physical therapy altogether, his brushes with death, and his journey back to the profession, a vocation that he loves today. Where did you grow up? Buffalo, New York. And I graduated from SUNY at Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo, from their physical therapy department. Yeah, what, and growing up, what was your family life like? I had a single mom, a no good Nick bio father who left us. I had two brothers younger than me. Uh, we were what they called Irish triplets. Do you know what that means? No. It means one after another after another in three <laughs> years. So, anyhow, um, 
I became kind of the man of the house pretty quick. And um, my mom was the most incredible woman in the world. She was a role model. She went to take a job as a secretary for a law firm and an insurance agency run by the Yellen family. And then the first summer working with them without, without us being in school, running all over the place, she was answering phone calls, complaints, everything. These guys got together and paid for us to go to summer camp every summer because we were such wild ones. And I'm telling you, I could do a whole podcast on that. While she was doing that, she went back to junior college, got a degree, and by the time she retired, she had been named Insurance Woman of the Year in Buffalo multiple times, and one of her friends said the reason she didn't get it every year is we had to rotate it so somebody else could get it. She wrote policies for the city of Cheektowaga, different factories around the area, and she only had six or seven accounts, but that's all she did. She handled the biggest accounts. When she retired, um, these clowns would call her up, sit her in a meeting, have her look everything over, not pay her a damn dime to hold on to the, the accounts. And then one day she said, I'm not going to do it anymore. She was an incredibly funny woman great sense of humor, and somebody that we lost very early at 61. And my brothers and I, we struggled with that for a while. We're grown adults. One of my brothers, I think, became depressed. And so finally, I called all of us together over at the house, and one of her favorite snacks was Limburger cheese on Jewish rye bread with thinly sliced onions, which she convinced us all to enjoy. So I had that spread out, some beers, and each one of us had to tell the funniest story we knew about Ma. I think we went till after midnight laughing all night long. And I really, really learned the power of laughter from that. Her, despite all the stuff she went through, paying off my deadbeat father's bills, signing things she should have never signed, but took the responsibility for him. She would ride the bus home on Delaware, and it was 25 cents. She'd get off at Delavan and had to pay a nickel transfer to go about another mile, mile and a half. She would walk it every day to save the nickel so on Saturday we could go to a candy shop. Mike, it sounds like, I mean, you grew up in a house with a single mom who was really successful. How do you, how do you think that impacted you? Oh, my God, you have no idea. She looked at me and said, don't be like your father. I said, it won't be. I want you to find something you want to do. Love it like I love what I do. And I want you to get a degree. We have none in our family. I promised her that and I did it. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know anything about PT. So I went to uh, 
mathematics. I was pretty good at math, and I was going to be a math teacher at a university level. So obviously, I'm getting some of my stuff out of the way, and a little bit more for the math part of it. Yeah. Then I met a girl, Nancy. Her father was a chemical engineer. He took me up to Hooker Chemical, gave me a tour, and I saw math in action. So I became a chemical engineer because of Nancy. Well, she dumped me. So, hmm, I really want to be an engineer. Well, during that time, I took physics, Chem 101, 102, Organic Chem. I was piling up the prerequisites. So I went back to school. Met another girl. She was a geology major, so I started taking geology courses.、Um, There's a theme here, Mike. Yeah, I know. And then, and I became very ill. I ended up with pneumonia, mono. I didn't take care of myself, and I'm in the hospital. So while I'm in the hospital, these physical therapists come came in. We don't have these anymore. Chest PTs, as far as I know. They're tipping me upside down, turning me on my right side, cupping me, suctioning me, and doing all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and there's the. Then I see this guy in a corner, sitting tilted back with a halter around his neck and a rope pulling him up and down, up and down, up and down. And I said to them, "What's he getting over there?" He has a pinched nerve that's causing pain down his arm, so we're giving him traction. So you got to remember, this is in the early seventies. Oh yeah. So I'm saying to myself, "What the heck is this profession? Physical <laughs> therapy." And I went to the university to check it out, and they did have a little prerequisite. They said, do you, "Have you done any volunteer work anywhere? It's not like you have to fill out all those forms you do today. You just go someplace. They give you a letter. You bring it back. Okay, you did some hours. So I had to pick a place close to campus, and there's a place called the Cantillation Center, which is still around today. I went in there, and then I laid my eyes on the most beautiful woman in the world, who was adorable with all the kids." I'm marrying that girl, and I'm going to be a PT. And on that Friday, some guy came in, put his arms around her, and kissed her. And she said, "Mike, come over and meet my fiance." Oh, but this time it did not sway me away from what I was studying because I realized I loved PT and I was going to be one. So I go back to the school, and I apply and I get in. So I'm getting ready to take it, and a friend of mine. This is the class of '73. I'm accepted with him. I'm supposed to start Crow's Anatomy next week. Talks me into putting it on hold and moving to Colorado to fly fish and hike. I just pack up, put my thumb out, and hitchhike out to Denver. So I get to Denver, finish the summer, had a job there. I come back to PT. Still want to be one. But I have to wait until the next summer 
they didn't have quite enough people to fill the 50 slots. I don't know if that's how I got in or my gift of gab, but I talked my way back in. I became a member of the class of 74. Then I get a call from a friend in Hawaii. Wants to know if I want to come out there and uh, surf scuba dive. He's got this boat and all this stuff and I can work on it. Oh my God. So I go up to the PT department at the end of that semester and I take another leave of absence. So I stay in Hawaii for a year. I leave Buffalo in January in a blizzard. I head out to Hawaii and I return on Christmas Eve in a very bad snowstorm and freezing temperatures. I knocked on the back door. I didn't know my mother was inside crying. My brother George was in Thailand in the Air Force. And my brother, other brother had met somebody who did everything she could to separate Danny from my mom and wouldn't allow him to come over on Christmas Eve. First one without any son. And I knocked on the door. I'll never forget her expression. She just hugged me and kept kissing me over my face. I said, wow. She said, why did you come back? I thought you would never come back from your postcards and that. And I said, I'm going to be a PT. She said, really? They'll let you do it again? I said, why not? So during the Christmas break, I go down there and I somehow get in the class of 75 and that's who I finished with. Okay, I want to take just a second to let you guys know about two of the mindful management courses we have going on in Tucson, Arizona this year. Mindful management of low back pain with leg pain in August and mindful management of neck pain in November. Both courses go over things like clinical pattern recognition, manual therapy, and exercise, but we couch it in a concept of mindful practice in physical therapy. If there is a problem in physical therapy right now, it's the lack of true awareness, true presence in the clinic. This can contribute to diagnostic error, poor relationships with patients, and inattentional blindness. The solution, the bridge between evidence-based practice and relationship-centered care, is mindful practice. Head over to themovementbrainery.com to take a look at when these courses are and how you can sign up. So, Mike, you start physical therapy school in the class of 75. What are your recollections of PT school back then? One thing that hit me was in my very first PT class. Dr. Griffin wrote the word patient on the chalkboard. Yes, chalkboard. (laughs) And wanted us to tell him what a patient was. They went through every medical model, the Merck manual, you name it, to try to define what a patient was. I didn't say anything because I knew it was a trick question. He just folded his arms. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. After about 15, 20 minutes, and he would write some key words up, disease, broken arms, stuff like that. <laughs> And he turned around and wrote four words, someone with a problem. And from that point on, 
I knew my job was to be a problem solver. Yeah, I think that was one of the reason kind of a lot of us go into physical therapy school. Just this idea that we're solving people's problems can be really rewarding. So you graduate physical therapy school. Uh, Tell me about your first job in physical therapy, Mike. So I finished up in PT school and I landed a job in Canandaigua, New York. Now, I originally did not want to take any work right away because I wanted to work at the plant. I made really good money there. I quickly learned nobody got rich in PT unless they'd been in it a while. So I get this phone call from a guy by the name of Charlie Moyer. And he said, are you Mike Rogers? And I said, yeah. I can't find anybody to work for me. I've been trying for two years. All I do is go to reserves on the weekend. I can't leave this place. I'm going to be real honest with you. I'll give you two to three weeks with me, and then I'm going away for three weeks. Well, I just could not resist that. My hands were rubbing together. Oh, my God, I'm going to run a PT department (laughs) by myself. I was, I was, you're just out of school. A, yeah. Just for three weeks while he was gone. So, but he, he just needed a vacation. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll take the job. So that's my first job. Now, my first day at work, I come pulling into the parking lot at FF Thompson Hospital. I'm driving a beat up Ford Maverick. And I am ready to go. I don't have to wear my good humor ice cream outfit, white pants, white shoes, white belt, Ben Casey, white scrubs. Oh, he wore a nice dress shirt and slacks. This is my kind of place. So I'm there a half hour early, slam the car door shut. I felt something kind of rub on my leg and I go walking into his department. He had a friend of his, uh, the assistant administrator down there that he was treating for a tennis elbow. And he looked at me and he said, who the hell shot you or stabbed you? My entire pant leg was soaked in blood with a trail of blood out to my car. When I slammed the door, I had a piece of trim molding that had peeled out And the bottom edge was as sharp as any razor blade or knife you could come up with. I was so excited about going into work, I didn't realize that I was bleeding. Sewed me up. Obviously, the pants had to go. And they gave me a pair of green scrubs. And I said, well, what do I do now? They said, we have no idea. But Charlie said, get your butt down to PT. He made me work that afternoon. (laughs) So I worked. And I didn't mind it. My very first patient he gave me, I can remember him putting his hand on his head, says, Mike, I hate to do this to you. I've got this patient that keeps coming back here, that the nurses keep getting Dr. Guattari to write an order for PT. I have to go down there, go through the motions, and all they really want to do is have a break from getting her up in the chair. And they know, and they were all nurses, female nurses, most of them pretty small. 
And I do this for two weeks. I write goals. She doesn't meet them. I discharge her. Well, here's your first patient. So I go down to the room. I'm not biased at all right now. Maybe I can help her. Yeah. So I go down there and I talk to the nurses. She had fallen about a year and three, four months prior to that. She was in it. They found her in her bathroom, closed head injury, probably a subdural that she survived. Yeah. And she was in a coma for about a year. I've never seen anybody with that many contractures in that type. But hey, I'm out of PT school that we were taught how to improve range of motion. So her name was Kathy Martin. I came in there every day, did range of motion, sat her up in the chair. And I started sitting across from her in a chair, kicking my legs out. I said, just do what I'm doing. Can you follow me? Kick your legs. And I got her kicking her legs a little bit. So next thing Charlie sees, I'm I'm wheeling her down to physical therapy. And I'm spending a lot of time with her. He pulls me in the office, says, Mike, you can't do this. We have too many patients. You're neglecting everybody. I'm going to discharge her. You, You did a good job. You did some things she hasn't done before. But I don't really think there's any hope for this woman. I couldn't handle that. So I said, how about if I just see her during my lunch hour? Or maybe a little bit after work when we finish up in the clinic. He says, well, if you want to do that, it's your choosing. Go ahead and do it. So I started working with Kathy, mostly range of motion, stretching, getting her to kind of imitate what I was doing. Um, And then I went to the Preston catalog. That was like the Sears and Roebuck catalog for PTs and rehab. And I bought these little padded booties, leather booties, that had a D-ring on them and some mitts that had a D-ring on them. So I started swinging my arms back and forth. I had like the lowest possible weight on the pulleys. And she started moving her arms like I was. I said, that's great. That's great. And for some reason, I kept calling her Mary Martin. I developed this habit. She never corrected me. She couldn't talk. And out of the blue, after about a month of working with her, and I would put a newspaper in front of her. And I would read part of it. I said, you read it too. And I found out she had glasses, went to her room, put her on, rosy red cheeks, beautiful, curly hair, sweetest woman you'd ever want to see. And one morning, one lunch out, uh, session, she took her little ulnar drifts and shook that newspaper at me and said, Young man, my name is Kathy Martin, not Mary Martin. I've never played Peter Pan in my life, so I wish you would call me Kathy. It's been a year and a half. So I go down the hall to the nurse's station. She was a beloved woman in Canandaigua. They start screaming and running down. They call Dr. Guadari. He comes in. They get a hold of her family, and she's communicating. 
Now I'm going to speed this up. Before I left Canandaigua, a little over a year later, Kathy and I went out to dinner and danced. Wow. Yeah. Mike, I think a lot of us have these cases where we just didn't give up on the patient and we were surprised in what the ultimate outcome was. I mean, this is decades later and you still remember not only her name, but what you called her. Uh, It's amazing how these stories can impact us. I don't think I have any cases that come close to this. It fueled me for the rest of my career. So while this was going on, I had my first exposure to manual therapy. Dr. James Syriax treated a doctor from Strong Memorial Hospital who had developed neck and arm pain in London. All, he was a physician's physician in many ways. He had a clinic on 32 Wimpole. And this doctor was amazed at what he could do and how he got him better. He had writ- authored a couple books. Yeah. And he did um, courses for this doctor, five-day courses on the neck, on the back, on this and that and the other, up at Strong. And I took them all. So this was back when his techniques were rather, I don't know if you know much about them, little bit on the aggressive side. (laughs) So when I went to do a neck, I would sometimes have to get a patient to help me if Charlie wasn't available. And they'd lock their arms around their ankles. I would put both my feet on the legs of the table. I cupped the occiput in the chin. I'd fall back and under strong traction do a quick rotation and the neck would pop like a Set a 4th of July firecracker. They'd sit up and they were getting better. I had a couple that didn't get worse. There's a difference between worse and increased. They were sore, it increased. But there was something about the techniques that I, you know, I mastered them. And I thought I could do a little bit better. Well, then he came back. And I elbowed my way backstage and I asked him if I could come study under him in London. Just out of the blue. He said, talk to my physios. So I met a couple of them and we wrote letters back and forth. In the spring of 77, I went to London and sat in James Syriax's office. What an experience. Now, Mike, we... We uh, interviewed Stanley Paris, and he had an experience with with James Syriax. It sounds like his clinic was kind of interesting. What what was that like? Well, he had a lot of Ming Dynasty stuff in there. Massive oak desk. It kind of looked like you were inside. If you've seen some of the classic uh, Sherlock Holmes, where you walk in, there's a staircase going up on the right. You go back, turn right underneath the... uh, staircase and walk into this big library um, looking room. And that was his office and treatment area. Yeah. Wow. Um, I spent a lot more time with him uh, than anybody else had ever done. The spring, I wasn't content with a day. And he amazed me because he did what he said he did. 
He treated like he demonstrated. And the most important part of his examination was observations and a patient history. And he had very specific questions he would ask for shoulder pain, back pain, whatever. So he would sit at this desk with a little pad in front of him, a pen. The patient would sit across from him and he'd ask the questions. They didn't answer, he'd repeat them and repeat them, repeat them until they answered it. He'd, he'd get all the answers. I wasn't allowed to talk. I wasn't allowed to interfere. I sat in a little chair along the wall the first week. And um, after that, it got a lot better. And he would motion me to come over. And then he would do his physical exam. And I learned about a system. We didn't have any system. It was just a couple special tests. And the shoulder hurts. Selective tension of tissue, active, passive, resistive movement, and feel, and everything else. And I know there's a lot out there that's debunked some of this, if you want to use the word. But it really, really was quite helpful in those days. So he, he did epidurals in his office, didn't need fluoroscopy. He did facet injections all the time, and he got such great results. Now, if they needed a lot of manual therapy, traction, manipulation, exercises, advice, he had a team of physios. And they were pretty much independent. He gave them space, gave them a cut, and they were phenomenal. And I noticed they weren't doing a lot of his manipulations. They were doing different ones. And I found out that he had an ex-partner upstairs. And if you've got any of the older Syriax um, textbooks on diagnosis, there are chapters that he entitled Barber's Contribution. Now, Ronnie Barber was uh, a physician. He was probably about, when I was there, about 55, 60 years old. And he believed in the SI joint. Syriac said in one of his books, pain arising from the sacroiliac joint is as uncommon as pain in the buttocks is common. Didn't believe in it, and it caused a schism. So Ronnie had the upstairs suites, and they came and left at different times. They had a schedule, lest they see each other. Bizarre. Well, the physios knew they weren't supposed to go up there, but they would sneak up there all the time. Dr. Ronnie, they loved him. Yeah, so it sounds like an amazing experience, not just uh, James Syriax, but, but Dr. Ronnie upstairs. Um, and then you got to interface with these physical therapists that were kind of steeped in that environment as well. So, Mike, uh, you eventually come back to the U.S., and, and what happened there? So I come back to America. I'm working for a company called PT Associates. And they are using this Dr. John Minnell, who's written a couple books on manual therapy, retired British orthopedist, didn't want to get a license, so he worked at the VA. So he taught their manual therapy courses. I did one course with him. We talked. I picked up every technique. And I got extremity manips, which were really helpful in certain cases. And he also had what he called the pathological sieve. 
where you looked at signs and symptoms and radiology and lab work for the structures of the body. Was it osseous? Was it metabolic? And he taught us to be diagnosticians. And we, and you know, a few people said, well, we're not allowed to diagnose. And he would always tell the story, okay, Johnny comes home crying. He fell down on his arm. His mother looks at it and sees this bump. He can't move his arm. He fell on it. She takes him to the emergency room and she says to the doctor, I think he broke his arm. Whether you want to admit it or not, she made a diagnosis. And he said, you should be making physical therapy diagnosis. And he fought for that, which is why we have a John Minnell Service Award with the Academy. He was great with service for us. Well, it only took one. He was developing health problems. It only took about, it only took one course. And he went to the company and he said, I need an assistant. I want Mike to be my assistant. And I assisted him until he passed away in England in 91 or 92. We became best friends. I watched him fight for our profession. So, again, I've had two medical manual therapists I worked with. So he said, you know, I want you to go up to Michigan State University. I have a friend up there, Dr. Phil Greenman. And at that time, Michigan State had a series of courses on manual therapy, but they were designed for the osteopath who felt like they didn't get enough and just got medical training. So I show up there. I managed to get in because of Dr. Minnell. I meet Dr. Greenman, who did most of the muscle energy technique, which I modified quickly to become more functional and less structural. And it's really helping my patient. I had good diagnostic skills. And then I took a course from Ola Grimsby, who was in the Pocono Mountains. And you had to take his fundamentals to take a cervical or a lumbar course. So I called up there and I spoke to his assistant. And when I told her everything I'd been through, I said, I want to go straight to the cervical. I don't need of foundations. Just send me the workbook. I'll read it and I'll figure out what you guys are doing. So when I'm there, oh my God, there must have been 80 people there. But he had a heck of a lot of assistants. And many of them were graduates and seasoned veterans in manual therapy, graduates of the manual therapy program in Norway, which I knew nothing about. By the end of that course, I had an interview with him on a Sunday before we broke up. He looked at me and said, I really want you to come to Norway and go on my program. I said, when does the next one start? He goes, soon. When do you need an answer? He goes, Tuesday. <laughs> How long before I show up in Norway? You got two weeks. <laughs> so I did it. I resigned. Now, mind you, as a director of this hospital, in 1980, I made $96,000. Wow. But I w worked 
from sunup till sundown. Mike, uh, why did you decide? I mean, at this point, you're you know you're you're doing well in your career. You've had experience with Syriacs and Manel. You're making good money. Why did you decide to go to Norway? It's my vocation, not my job, not my career, not my income. But when I was at the course, his lab assistants were really good. And they were showing me techniques I'd never heard of. And then he did a part on medical, what they called medical trainings therapy from Advar Holton. And it was a whole different approach. There was a lot more exercise integrated with manual therapy. And I didn't, I thought I was missing out on something. So I go to Norway and it's a very structured program. It's a yawner for me in many ways. Yes, some different techniques, but I knew technique. Now, I was not allowed to manipulate in Norway. Was not allowed. Because you had to finish the manual therapy program, take a few extra weeks, some training, and then you would get certified to do uh, manipulation. Well, I didn't need manipulation. I wasn't going to be in Norway. I'd already been manipulating. Plus, uh, a lot of the more experienced PTs, Tom Torkelson, Ustfall, a few others, uh, we'd get together in a room, practice with a wink-wink, meaning, oh, you cavitated. That happens sometime. So I was learning some things from them. They were so experienced. 10, 15 years of being manual therapist, their observation skills on posture, imbalances, their treatment skills of combining manual therapy with exercise was something I needed. And then they would come in and they would observe you and give you feedback. I knew I had done the right thing. So you know what I did? I wrote down everything I could while I was there and created a residency program for America. Yeah, Mike, this is, uh, I think this is in 1983, right? And there weren't too many residency programs back then. What what made you want to start one in the U.S.? Because I knew PTs knew diddly. I didn't want them to have to go through what I did to get where I was. Why not do it here? Why was America not having any residency programs? Now, After I got back, I hurt my back. I fell off my porch. I was in a lateral shift for a while. I had to wear a little brace. took me a while to get better. And I met a guy by the name of David Apps, A-P-T-S. David ran a thing called the American Back School. He was steeply trained in McKenzie and self-treatment. I couldn't get out of that recurrent lateral shift until I met him and learn shift correction, and learn how to move safely. So I ended up on his faculty, which included Dennis Hart. He had Dr. Earhart there that talked about the role of manipulative therapy. He had me there to talk about uh, stabilization and mobilization exercises and the Norwegian-based approach. There were a bunch of us, and it was called the American Back School. 
And it was just, we went all over the country. It was like a traveling road show. Oh my God, it was so much fun. But one of the things I never, ever, ever did was jump off one bandwagon onto another. What I did was called out the best and put it in with the rest. But one thing I did not want to do in my program was create inbreeding. I did not ever want them to be Mike Rogers manual therapist. And I remember the open-mindedness concept of Maitland. So over the years, I mean, Yonda, yeah. uh, Lori Hartman became an annual one who did the manipulation course. Bjorn Svensson, who taught me an awful lot about cervical and lung, lumbar unloading, which I find one to be one of the most valuable tools. Um, I, I could go on. I can't even, the, the list would go on and on. And so you had one of the only residency programs in the country, which led to a fortuitous meeting in the early 90s, right? The program motored along. It was getting better and better, in my opinion. So in 19, I think it was 91, I get this phone call. The secretary runs up and says, Mike, there's some guy on the phone. I can't understand him. Kackleberger. I go, Kackleberger? Coldborn. And I go, Carltonborn? Yeah, that's it. So the therapist in the gym, they start going gaga. They cannot believe that Freddie Carltonborn, because I I learned all about his techniques, especially extremity techniques in Norway. We had his textbooks. It was part of our program to study him. They are just, oh, my God. Freddie Coltonborn calling Mississippi. <laughs> so I get on the phone and he goes, Mike Rogers, do you remember me? I said, of course I do. You were at my final examination as an observer. Well, you did very well and I haven't forgotten you. I've tracked you down and I know what you're doing. <laughs> okay. He said, you will receive a phone call and it will come from Cornelia Kulig. She will give you a date, book a flight, and be there that weekend. Ola Grimsby and Stanley Parrish shall be there. Kaiser Permanente will be there. University of Pittsburgh with Dick Earhart will be there. Michael Moore from Folsom Physical Therapy will be there. And of course, Cornelia Kulig, who is at Oakland University running a program there, and Bjorn Svensson, who had Great Lakes residency program. I mean... You will be there. He hangs up on me. Well, I'm not missing out. I get a call from Cornelia. She said, Mike, you should come. I said, okay. So here we are. Lots of rivalries, lots of different opinions. And I was steeped in Stephen Covey. And I said, our greatest strength is not our independence, but it's being independent and acted interdependently. When you act interdependently and value each other's differences, you create a synergy, and that synergy is the third aspect. Independent plus independent, working together, creates interdependence. 
So we have to do this. And from that point on, we started writing a uh, bylaw. Stanley did that. So now I'm, I'm, I'm the membership chairperson, the conference chairperson. I'm the newsletter editor. I don't know what else. And I'm vice president with Joe Farrell on the executive. So um, I can remember John Childs telling me not too long ago, he says, I got to tell you something. We were looking at you, meaning most of the military uh, PTs, guys like Gail Dial and uh, Tim Flynn, all of them, I guess. And I'm going, what the hell is this? How did Gulfport, Mississippi become the epicenter of manual therapy in America? Everything I get is Gulf. And who's this Mike Rogers guy? But you go ahead and were elected as the president, right? You were a two-term president of AMPT. So then I became a two-term president. And our next objective, we were developing standards for residencies. We were using the original ones. And with our blessing and assistance, formed the Joint Task Force on Residencies and Fellowships, whatever they called it back then. I then phased out of the academy, except for going to the meetings and being the elder or whatever you call me back then. And then... In the after Katrina, I bowed out for a while. I lost my clinic and I had a library. Everything was taken. Thirty years gone in three hours. I didn't move it out. Um, a little bit of like holy cow! I had the most incredible library. Books signed by Manel, Syriax, Alan Stoddard, etc. And. It kind of got me down, but then I saw a lot of people in need. Uh, an elderly neighbor whose house was in really bad shape and needed me to, with my, oh, uh, shot, thirteen-year-old son, clear her yard. I was cutting out sheetrock out of houses. My house was destroyed. The clinic was gone. My brother had a business. He was floundering. Um, and I jumped in and we turned the business around. I helped a lot of people. And then I just decided maybe I won't be a PT. Wow. So you leave PT altogether. And the last chapter in all this was when Dick Earhart passed away. I loved him. He was, I mean, at, the, at his funeral, his son called him. He said there were two Dick Earharts. One was intellectual Dick Earhart. The other one was caveman Dick Hart. Dick had polio in one of his legs. It was like a pencil. He wore a AFO below the knee. And I didn't know it until his funeral. He was an all-state guard in Pennsylvania. And his nickname was Dirty Dick. What a, he, I just loved him. He was my mentor, my friend, my colleague. He came down every year. He and his wife actually stayed at one of our condos for an entire summer. And Dick worked in Gulfport, in our clinic. And then he got multiple myeloma. And 
I just had trouble handling it. It came on after Katrina. I couldn't, everything was going wrong for being a PT. So what I did is, my, well, I have a son who was very good at hockey. We sent him to prep school in Lake Placid to play varsity hockey. Natalie, Dick's wife, absolutely adored him when he was a young kid. She used to threaten to kidnap him. So Sean and I, when he started a school year, would drive up to Virginia and visit Dick for four or five days. I'd take Sean to school. I'd come back and have four or five days with Dick. Come the end of the school year, I'd drive up, stay with Dick for a few days, pick up Sean, stay there. I did this for about the entire high school career of Sean up in Lake Placid. Um, The last time we were there, he was very, very weak. Wasn't himself. And I got worried. So we took him in. We were supposed to go to lunch with Dennis Hart, who we did go to lunch with, but without Dick. And we took him to a hospital, small hospital. And Dick was um, put in a room to get a transfusion. It took a few hours and he would fall asleep. So he said, you guys go to lunch, enjoy, whatever. Dennis took us to his sailboat. He wasn't that far from Dick. And they never saw each other. Now they would. So we go up, spend a day with um, Dennis. He comes back just to check on Dick, and then he heads home. Um, Years later, I would get a call from Dennis. I said, Dennis, how are you doing? "Uh, Not too good. So what's the matter? I was diagnosed with stage four malignant um, melanoma. And guess where I am right now? I said, I don't know. I'm in the same room Dick was in getting my chemotherapy. I mean, I was devastated. I lost two of them, two of my best friends. So that June, we left, and now was Sean's senior year coming up, so we had one more round of trips to see Dick, uh, hoping we could do it. He was so much better in September, I couldn't believe it. And we left going back, and a month later he passed. So I drove up to, I wasn't in the academy anymore, I wasn't doing PT, I drove up to Washington, D.C., picked up Stanley Paris, Dennis Hart, and Joe Farrell. And we drove to uh, Pittsburgh, and I was one of a couple of speakers who delivered a memorial speech about Dick. Very moving. But one of the things I learned from Mike Timko, I had no idea. In the summers between my visits, they would drag his ass up to Pittsburgh and have him do consults, lecture, and teach, and he did it. I didn't know he was doing that, and he did it that summer. So we all drive back to Washington. I drop off Dennis, who would later leave us, Stanley and Joe, and I head back down to the coast. I was about 20 miles from Washington, and there was a rest area, 
I couldn't see. I was crying so hard. And then I said, you son of a bitch. That was to myself. This man is dying from multiple myeloma. It's his last summer of life. And he's in love with PT. You open a restaurant. You walk away. You don't go to academy meetings anymore. You dirty, rotten person. I mean, I was furious with myself. I come home. I call a family gathering. And I said, I just want to let you all know, I'm going to go back to being a PT. I mean, the cheers, the hugs, and everything just erupted in the room. And my fan, it was spontaneous from them. They were just overwhelmed because Mike the PT was the real Mike. So I had a rotten hip. I get it replaced, get a job at Memorial Hospital, and I've never looked back. And I got into P&E. And by the way, P&E, oh my God, some of the stuff that they're saying, I go, this is all self-evident. And you're just finding this out. I can remember one of the people speaking at Combined Sections, one of the big names, saying we did a paper and we found out the more patients understand their pain and problem, the better they do. I go, really? You had to do a paper on that? Everything they were saying, I was doing. Yeah. I mean, the P&E stuff is interesting. From a basic perspective, it's not super different from what Maitland was talking about 50 years ago. And I just want to share this one last thing. In December 2021, my youngest daughter gave us our fourth granddaughter on the 19th. On January 2nd, I had a full ruck pack, a rifle, trudged a half mile through the woods, came into a deer stand from the backside, climbed up it like it was nothing, climbed into it. It was 37 degrees, blown about 15 to 20. Some deer popped out. You don't shoot a doe with two small ones near it. That's how it usually works. That means they just gave birth. You hope a buck comes out. Never happened. But there was a big doe without any yearlings, without any reason not to shoot it, for which I always send a processor and get taken care of and eat it all. So at 140 yards, I take it down by the, on the ground with one shot. I climb down. I walk 140 yards to get it. I grab it by the hoofs and by myself drag it uphill to the road where my friend came over and got it. On June 4th, I went to bed. And at 1.30 in the morning, I became violently ill and septic. Um, I knocked on heaven's door that night. Somehow I came through it. I was put in ICU for a week. I stayed there for two weeks, getting antibiotics, all kinds of other stuff. And I was getting some better, but something was wrong. The surgeon wanted to cut out most of my colon. He said I had an ischemic colon. 
and he says, I'll try to say what I can and maybe I can re- reconnect your sigmoid colon with your ascending colon. And he said, luckily you have a very, you have what we call a redundant sigmoid colon, so I may be able to do that, but I'm not promising anything. The infectious disease doctor, Dr. Conger, came in and said, whoa, way too early. The guys had a CT scan and a CT blood flow, mesenteric artery, everything's there. The surgeon said, yeah, but it doesn't show the microvasculature at the interface. He said, let me call in a GI doctor. So he brings in Dr. Hopkins, gets him to do a colonoscopy. They explain the risk of having inflamed colon and perforations, etc. And they take biopsies. And I've already had another. I was in there the second time because my brothers found me in the house, shaking, eyes rolling in the back of my head, low blood pressure, everything, and barely got me to the hospital on time. George looked at Danny as they took me in and says, I hope this isn't the last time we see Michael I. Well, they nursed me back to health. And lo and behold, I had a virus. I didn't have a bacterial infection. They got me going on antiviral IVs. I progressively got better. I came home about two and a half weeks ago. I had two weeks of IV infusions at the hospital I went for daily. I'm slowly getting better. I'm taking oral medication now. I'm back to seeing a few patients a day. The only problem is I had no upper body strength whatsoever. And that's where I am right now. Sitting here with a Buffalo Bills blanket wrapped around me because I get chilled a lot. I don't have have much meat on me. I'm just happy to be back. Psychologically seeing patients has done more for me than anything. And I'm practicing my vocation. And I hope that's not the end. Yeah, you've had a, a really long journey in physical therapy, Mike, and you've treated patients uh, for a really long time. If I had to ask you what, you know, in, in, in your interactions with students, what do you think is one thing that clinicians need to do better in the clinic? Oh, it's, it's a little more than one thing. But um, one thing I talked about was shrimp, shrimping on the coast, which I did. I, I've done that. And I told everybody, we drag a net, and after a while, we pull it up in the boat. It's a big bag full of shrimp and other stuff. It goes on this big board that's got siding all the way around, and you pull out shrimp. And you throw all your regular-sized shrimp on one thing, but you then come across what we call money shrimp big ones. You're going to get more for those. So you throw them in the bucket. Then you're left with pinfish, jellyfish, all kinds of trash. You slide a board back and it all, it's at an incline. It all runs out. You run a hose and you put the net back out again. And one thing I'll say is this. I've seen too many people. I got a couple I kind of a little disappointed in, they learned a technique, and that's all they basically do. Um, I I did the culling process with Syriax, Minel, the Osteopaths, Norway, 
and I kept the money shrimp. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater all the time. Don't change your practice overnight, unless you're doing something really stupid and you figured it out. That would be one thing. The second thing would be going back to John Minnell and James Syriax. James Syriax wrote, Every Patient Has a Story. John Minnell started almost every class with, Listen to thy patient. They're telling you what's wrong. I was outspoken on um, evidence, evidence-based. When it came out, I saw people doing really, really unbelievable things. So I did write a paper, I've lost it, called The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Do not get me wrong. Evidence-based practice is important. We have to deal with insurance companies for reimbursement. We have to deal with other professions. So having things that justify doing manual therapy justifying um, exercise and justifying so many different things for what we do, validating it. Very, very important. We didn't have a lot of that. The bad was pigeonholing things. Actually using the techniques and the selected exercise they used for just that study. And doing it on everybody. I go, how dumb is that? Ran into a lot of that. And the ugly. The elitism that came with it. With the researchers. And I don't mean people like John Childs and that. They're fabulous. But there were a lot of people out there. Especially people getting out of PT school. Who would come in there spouting all these things. And then when I would tell them something, I've been doing 30 years from clinical experience with good, I use the ABCs, anatomy, biomechanics, and clinical sciences for a lot of what I've done. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted a reference. That was the ugly. So I would say be careful with evidence-based practice. Listen to thy patient. They're telling you what's wrong. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Cull through things. Keep the best, get rid of the worst as you move along. Yeah, I think those are some good points. I think another thing that that we ask, I mean, last year was the 100th anniversary of the APTA. And you're getting, you know, towards the, the last, you know, few years maybe of your physical therapy career. If you were to look into the next hundred years of physical therapy, um, what do you see? We've got to be problem solvers. Um, we can't be controlled by bureaucrats. But many of us have little choice that so they won't pay us. Seth, there were days I saw 40, 45 patients. You can't do that today. No. And they got good care because I stayed came in early and stayed late and worked through lunch. I loved what I did. It was my vocation. I was a problem solver and they kept feeding me one problem after another. 
that was Mike Rogers, who, after his whirlwind journey through the profession, is still a practicing clinician today. He also still teaches a few continuing education courses with Odyssey Seminars. Check him out. And again, if you like the show, please consider two things for me. One, leave a review wherever you're listening. It, it just takes two seconds. And then head over to Facebook and join us in our group, Mindful Clinicians. See you there. Thanks for listening and stay strong. <laughs>